0: This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we talk about what it would mean to queer higher education. My guests are Luis Morley and Daniel Layton. In their new book, they disrupt some of the norms and common ways of thinking that are prevalent in higher education today.
1: Queer theory attempts to destabilize, disrupt, and deconstruct norms, binaries, boundaries, and understandings of power. It's used a lot to re signify injurious or hate speech, it recasts abuse and abjection as affirmation
2: theory is not just about transgressing the normal or the givens in higher education, but about searching in borders or marginalized experiences uh, which are produced by and within these processes. We search through these margins.
0: Luis Morley is an emeritus professor of higher education at the University of Sussex, and Daniel Layton is a lecturer of education at the University of Exeter. Their new book is entitled Queering Higher Education, Troubling Norms in the Global Knowledge Economy. Louise Morley and Daniel Layton, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: We're delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting us, Will.
0: Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. And congratulations on your book. It's just fantastic. It's very unique. I haven't really seen much work on issues around queer theory and higher education. So so congratulations. I guess the starting point in a conversation like this is to kind of go big and sort of say, what is queer theory? You know, assuming that there might be some listeners out there who might never have heard of that term. How do we sort of explain it in a simple way? What is queer theory?
1: It's a very good question, Will. Thank you. Well, queer theory attempts to de. Stabilise, disrupt and deconstruct norms, binaries, boundaries and understandings of power. It's used a lot to re signify injurious or hate speech. It recasts abuse and abjection as affirmation. But we're very clear that our book is not just about identity and sexual orientation, the hetero homo divide. We use queer as a, a verb, a noun, and an adjective, and we relate it to theory, practice, action, resistance, and critical edge. What we've attempted to do is to theorize exclusion, objection, and marginalization from multiple vantage points of knowledge. And one thing that's really important about queer theory is that it's attentive to the structural and affective processes of exclusion and marginalization.
0: I guess a follow-up question would be something around studying issues of transgressions in a way, and and, and how queer theory might do that slightly differently than maybe some of the the other ways that people in the academic space have studied uh, transgressions.
2: Well, you're right. We have used queer theory to analyze what we call kind of global dominant movements, so often embraced in higher education and by higher education stakeholders, no? Like internationalization, digitalization leadership or affirmative action on widening participation policies. First of all, I, I might say that these are global movements because they have expanded across higher education worldwide, no, uh, through discourses, policies and practices and networks of power beyond the national. And they promote different contested figures of subjectivity or subjects or ways of being, no, the entrepreneur, the global academic, the, the exceptional minority, etc. But looking at those global movements with theory, is not just about transgressing the normal or the givens in higher education, but about searching in borders or marginal life experiences, uh, which are produced by and within these processes. We search through these margins, through these borders, ways of life, relations and knowledges that open opportunities, not just for imagining a different world, but also for making in practice new ways of thinking about higher education new ways of social relations within higher education and knowledge relationship those social relations and new ways of thinking about higher education we are trying to identify within those the potential to show that the present state of things are not necessary or are not inexorable so that might be one of the difference or the main difference between queer theory and other type of studies about transgression
0: it's quite fascinating to think about, you know, how we might queer the university in different ways and, and thinking of that as a verb, a noun, an adjective. I love sort of that splitting it around those different ways of thinking about the, the, the term queer itself. But I guess we need to, before we do that, we need to sort of understand the state of the university and higher education itself, right? Like, why does that institution need to be queered, so to speak? Like, what are some of these dichotomies that exist? What are some of these binaries that you see that need to then be queered?
1: There have been other pieces of research that have been conducted, say, on LGBTQ plus students, staff, etc., and all the issues of oppression, marginalization, exclusion. Our book is the first to apply queer theory to higher education in terms of policy structures rather than just to identity politics. And one of the things that we've noticed over the decades is that many of the interventions that have been politically and strategically designed to shift exclusionary norms, they can often reproduce them. So, for example, there's a global movement in counting more underrepresented groups into higher education. It's called Widening Participation in Britain, in Chile, it's Affirmative Action, etc., but it works with a policy dichotomy about class. It incorporates a highly stratified, a very certain, a very rarefied social class system. And Daniel and I have worked on this all around the world, <laughs> this, this topic in, in different continents. And there's a construction of working class students that draws on a kind of theory of abjection, um, lack, deficit, etc., And they're measured against the middle-class norm. And the same would apply to the global movement uh, around women and leadership, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. There's a very central binary in that between women and men. It's a quantitative uh, goal to count more women in to leadership positions. The same with the science with STEM. Um, What it doesn't do is particularly deconstruct uh, the term woman and makes lots of assumptions about norms and how women's lifestyle. We, we're also very conscious that policy often overlooks affect. It's often presented in a quite linear, rational trajectory. And what we have tried to do is highlight the affective economy of striving for value in a policy context that it tangles exclusion with shame and failure. So if you're excluded, you are a loser, and in order to counter that, you have to be included to become a winner. And there's a very powerful dichotomy of winners and losers in higher education, of success and failure. One of the issues about queer ontology and epistemology is that it attempts to render the normal and familiar, strange and unstable. So in a sense what we've tried to do is When we queer these dichotomies is to get some kind of meta level analysis. And we invoke queer theory not because it provides another set of certainties to grid onto the policy turbulence of higher education, but because it dismantles the seemingly untouchable linear certainty itself. So applying queer
2: theory in this way, we are calling attention also about why an institution such as a university that it seems though, or that um, resembles itself contributing to the public good in general, in order to do that, needs to exclude or put at the margins all those subjectivity or people who do not conform with the norm that these boundaries are creating all the time. So why, in a way, with quiz theory, we can show and call attention to why the university play a role in making exclusions hierarchies and ignorance or in the ways, for example, uh, exclude all the different ways of seeing the world of knowledges that are constructed by the university as an institution as not scientific, biased, not rational or neutral or not neutral enough, let's say. So I think that's, that is important. And all those norms that are reproducing by these boundaries are, we have seen in our book and we showed in our book that They are insistently involved and reinforced by the very same discourses and practices of global higher education.
1: If
0: I understand this correctly, then the the proposition in a sense is that queer theory can sort of illuminate and destabilize a lot of these norms that often are, let's say, just sort of taken for granted aren't questioned, sort of just reproduced unconsciously, and of course have certain power dynamics, you know, et cetera, that play out. But you're also sort of saying that so queer theory destabilizes, but it isn't sort of offering an alternative that then sort of gets, you know, operationalized and becomes concrete and sort of also has certain sort of power dynamics. So I guess in the sense the question in a way is something around you know, to what end is queer theory work? Is it simply destabilizing or is there another step that it's also working towards?
2: I would say it is not just destabilizing. An important ethos of queer theory is rejecting the here and now, rejecting the present, but in order to show that there are other ways of thinking and feeling and doing, in this case, higher education. And those ways are precisely uh, within the borders that are created with the with the practice of exclusion. Those borders Uh, within, from a queer theory angle, has the potential to create new worlds and new lives. In this way, for example, when we think about all the exclusionary practices of higher education with queer theory, we think that it is not just about carving out a a new space for new constituencies in higher education, but it is more about challenging and questioning the norms that are not questioned when you just uh, keep open, open the space of higher education, but in order to integrate new constituencies, but within the same rigid norms and binary and binaries that are devaluing those experiences and biographies. So, for example, when we think about notions of success or meritocracy, very deeply engaged in high education values, even within ourselves as academics, right? We believe in those values all the time. But success and meritocracy glows over in the ways in which they are complicity with exclusion and negative aspects, such as shame, failure, debility, self responsibilization or, or unbelonging. So in a way, in our, by showing those negative aspects attached to bodies, through those values of higher education, success, and meritocracy, we can start rethinking again, again how and why we can value those borders made by those aspects, you know, in a way trying to identify What are the potentialities that those ways of feeling and thinking might bring into the table to reimagine again another world of knowledge in this case?
1: We've tried to make it very clear that we are not offering a simple exchange of one set of certainties for another. What we're trying to do is to encourage people involved in higher education, policy, practice, process to think differently. Let's pick up
0: that thinking differently around what you brought up earlier, Luis, around sort of women in leadership positions in university about sort of, you know, gender equality as sort of a norm and a discourse that that exists in, in higher education. What would sort of queer theory sort of reveal from such a norm that is quite commonplace.
1: Okay. Well, we've attempted to deconstruct the term women, and we've highlighted the heteronormative discursive regime that informs global narratives to increase women's representation. And I've been involved in this area for quite a while and worked on different continents, and there are themes that dominate this whole area. Women are invariably represented in terms of being cis-heterosexual. The category woman is often uh, immediately equated with being a mother. Women are presented as being in intimate partnerships with men. There are a lot of data about who does the childcare, etc. There's um, uh, whose career is impeded by childcare, And the nuclear family is the dominant model for discussing this, and one of the explanations that you get in so many different national locations is that women are impeded from seniority by all their domestic and child care responsibilities. So there's all kinds of assumptions about women's lifestyles here. There's also this notion that women somehow lack self-esteem and value and worth. Um, in relation to all these powerful men who surround them. Therefore, women have to be individually empowered. <laughs> they have to have their confidence raised, etc. And again, it's this binary that women are constantly being compared to men, in and but they're being compared in a very negative way or in a very essentialized way. So for example, Studies will say that women have better communication skills and better interpersonal skills. Women are more have more empathy in the workplace, etc. These are all highly highly generalized and essentialized. And often if women do have those, it's because they've been profoundly socialized into caring and thinking about the other. But that could be an archaic stereotype. Uh we've lived with neoliberalism for several decades now. And women have been socialized to be very individualistic in a way that, um, would, would, would challenge that notion that, you know, that women are all benign and, uh, men are all very, very self, uh, motivated and self-focused. This is a, an area that has troubled us for, for quite a while. Uh, there's also a big silence around masculinities in this. It, the women tend to be the object of inquiry. We have to work on the women, work with the women. There's very little discussion in the women and leadership theorizations about leadership itself. And what we've tried to do is to queer leadership and demonstrate that it's a constructive disruption, which has restorative, affirmative and bridging effects. Through the strategic articulation of seemingly opposite desired some actions, connecting and disrupting. So leadership is often presented as an unquestioned good and all we need to do is count more women into it. But so much of the research that we've conducted in South Asia, for example, it demonstrates that women are reject, a lot of women are rejecting senior leadership. Uh, It has too many cultural associations and policy ventriloquisms. They feel that they will just be required to implement policies they don't necessarily support. The other big issue is that heteronormativity is the unmarked norm and primary mode of citation embedded in the gender and leadership scholarship. There's very little, very, very little work on the LGBT leadership, trans leadership, etc. It is beginning but it's still very much at the margins. The mainstream debate constructs women in a particular way. Uh, There's the notion that leadership is intrinsically a good thing and we have to count more women into it. And there's very little about uh, other uh, structures of inequality. And in our work, we've looked at chrononormativity, which as you know, is all about age and uh, what is seen as age appropriate. And this is a dominant discourse in uh in any thinking about career progression, there's this notion that you should be at certain stages, at certain points in your life, and those are age appropriate, age related. And that's a, that's a whole there's a whole set of norms embedded in that thinking that we have tried to trouble.
0: It's such a good insight and a good example of queer theory and sort of applying it to some of these norms as we've as we've been talking about. As I was listening, I, I kept thinking that a lot of what you're saying would apply, to institutions beyond higher education, most likely. It's not just higher education in a way. You know, I guess to turn to higher education more specifically, you know, one of the things that struck me in your book is that you write how COVID-19 sort of, you quote, profoundly queered higher education. How did COVID nineteen do that, in your opinion?
1: Oh uh, yes, excellent question. Well, the COVID nineteen pandemic was a non-human force that disrupted higher education globally, and higher education, that very very dominant and prominent institution, entered into survival mode. But it, I think what we were interested in was what it surfaced, the norms um, that surfed that it surfaced, and the pandemic seemed to legitimate austerity purging, reshaping, precarity, so whose lives mattered, whose employment rights mattered, whose safety was protected, etc. And it very much challenged the notion of higher education being a safe, privileged space. It highlighted vulnerabilities, strength inequalities in processes, practices, relationships, and infrastructures in higher education and some institutions used the pandemic to immediately uh cut contracts <laughs> make people redundant etc um so another part about uh, the pandemic was how it how it massively disrupted mobility and the i mean higher education is all about the good life <laughs> you engage in it you engage with the life of the mind and you have all the benefits of cosmopolitanism, credentialization, higher income, social networking, employability, all of these goods that are attached to participation in higher education. Well, they were somehow suddenly very queered by the introduction of new and unforeseen bodily fragilities and vulnerabilities. And we've used the concept of necropolitics to explore this: whose lives are of value. And remember that the pandemic coincided with other uh, global movements like Black Lives Matter. So the pandemic surfaced and exposed a lot of inequalities and hierarchy, but it also exposed heteronormativity. uh, In policies around lockdown in the UK, for example, The there was a profoundly heteronormative construction of the household. It was based very much on a nuclear family and a particular intimate relationships. The pandemic also breached boundaries about home, work, the digital, the in-person, etc. But a really, really profound part of it was that stasis and immobility are antithetical to the global knowledge economy. For so long, we've been told that the international is the, the dominant goal. And the pandemic disrupted mobility, and the entitlement to cross borders was unsettled. And citizenship identities shifted to binaries of belonging and exclusion, who was allowed to stay in the UK, who was allowed to return to the UK, etc. Et so it also illustrated humanity's unprecedented connectivity and global commodity chain. And the COVID showed the precarious and violent situations of students and academics and non-academic staff alike. And it's been noted in so many different national locations that domestic violence rates rocketed during lockdown. So it what it did was it massively surfaced and highlighted inequalities that we've always known were there. But it provided a kind of stop relief for their enactment.
2: And I would add in a way also that like the, the pandemic as a crisis, signifies as a crisis, was used also to even promoting further the entrance of the digital, the digital platforms and companies. And those companies now kind of queer also the private and public divide. So now we are demanding to take up all those opportunities that digital platforms and digital teaching possibilities has for us. Is our new environment of higher education that means that, that the private, the private environment is our new natural environment of higher education for the public good. So in a way that crisis was promoted further by the same, by the very same companies that are saying that they are disruptive. You know, so and we need to we don't have other ways but just uh you know, like go and jump into this new endeavor. So in a way that disruption it has and it will have unforeseen consequences for the future of higher education.
1: Winston Churchill said never let a good crisis go to waste. And it was very noticeable how many higher education institutions around the globe seized the moment to make people redundant, to close down departments to charge you know, huge amounts of money for student accommodation during lockdown, etc. And also it
2: creates, a, well, new ways of making people redundant, as Luis says, But for example, through recasting the boundary between the future, the modern and the old. You know, like so all the teachers or all the uh, higher education practices not so keen to use uh, the digital in different ways are recast or are uh, kind of reconceived as the old, as not the, the ones prepared for, you know, the new adventures of the digital platforms in higher education. So it also is creating new boundaries and new hierarchies that before that, that weren't in place all so embedded in higher education as they are today after just two years.
0: It's so fascinating because a lot of these issues you raise are still being worked through in universities, and I would imagine in different ways, you know, with Teams and Zoom and trying to figure out, you know, how do you integrate some of these tools and learning platforms into your teaching? and, And if you don't do it, how you might be perceived by your colleagues who do do it. And it becomes this, you know, very strange emotional space as well when you're thinking about you know, your own teaching. And there's also this sort of hanging on of the work from home, which as Luis was saying, privileged a particular, you know, understanding of what home is and a particular class. You know, I remember I when I lived in London, the whole idea of working from home wasn't really feasible because I didn't have a big enough flat. I couldn't afford a big enough flat that had, you know, another space in it. But the discourse around it sort of assumed that I did. It was always really quite difficult to tell colleagues who did have a separate room where they could have an office and working from home was not a disruption to their normal lives. Um, And so you can see how universities and staff and students, we haven't even, you know, the students as well, we're still working through this. And, And so I think you're right. It queered the university, but we have no clue where we're going after this. You know, when I read your book, one of the other terms that kept popping up was decolonization. And this sort of goes back to what, Luis, when you were saying how COVID happened, it happened simultaneously with these other sort of movements, and one of them was Black Lives Matter which is sort of shorthand for this sort of resurgence of social activity and sort of rethinking scholarship. And it sort of comes under the, the banner now of decolonization. So what is the connection between queering the university and queering higher education and queer theory and decolonization? Is there a connection?
2: Yeah, there is a deep connection. You know, like most people say, a lot of people say that queer theory is just an invention from the States, from the United States, from a North American invention. But the truth is that it it isn't. So queer and colonized subjectivities, on the one hand, share histories of subjugation and nonconformity. Moreover, they share a kind of an anti-colonial, anti-binary leaning uh, in one of their origins of of thoughts, through the work of Gloria Anzaldúa, Anzaldúa, for example, who coined bye The notion of border thinking and that notion was took up after by the colonial thinkers such as Mignolo, for example. So through, for example, that notion of border thinking, which means feeling, thinking and knowing from the outside, but the outside that is produced and attached within the in the attached to the inside that creates that border or that line or that, that, that margin, you know. So that notion was crucial to understand how we can gain a vantage point of knowledge and experience from that border. And as we say in our book, you know, these global movements promote the digital economy, internationalization in higher education, um, but those kind of uh, movements are not understood, embodied. You know, I mean, uh, they are present. And, with, and through connecting decolonization and queer theory, we can see those uh, movements as embodiments, not just those typical ideal identities such as the global academic, the international academic, with all those privileges, imaginaries, but as embodiments of different borders, national, gender, class, household borders. And all those borders are meaning that our identities get blurred. So all those borders, thinking with queer theory and decolonization, Are seen or understood as blurring the identity, and even more. We can think about those borders as forcing academics, for example, to even incorporate even new ones' identities, multiple identities, multiple positionings in their repertoire. And those new positionings are most of the time restricted, subaltern, or demand a detachment from and silencing from their vital trajectories. I might say that it is true that the idea of decolonizing the university of decolonization is becoming a commonplace an instrumental to dominant projects of global higher education. I would say in a way it is used, especially from universities here in the UK and in the global north, uh, as a form of an international branding by the internationalization of the curriculum, for example. But decolonizing higher education from a queer point of view, it means disrupting the linear progressive idea that just the global north is the place of freedom, for example, for for a, a queer type of life. So this linear narrative gloss over the historical truth that in the global south there has been a huge tradition of queer or non-binary thinking through, for example, South Asian deities, Mapuche three gender categories in South America and Argentina and Chile, Yoruba's ungendered social organization, or the Indian Hehire or two spirits, shamans, and in in indigenous communities in the Americas. So when we link queer theory and decolonization We can gain a deeper historical conscience about what knowledge and experiences and ways of thinking of disrupting the binary are excluded from the Western dominant narratives of higher education and knowledge.
0: I mean, I love it, right? So, like, when I listen to all of this, I am convinced, right? I love the idea of queering everything because it sort of does anytime you destabilize something and you can sort of reveal new insights and think differently, think a new world in a different way. All of that makes sense to me. So, but at the same time, I worry, did I just get, you know, did I drink the Kool-Aid and I just think this is the best thing ever? And so, you know, I want to put it to you, you know, now that you've done this thinking about queer theory and higher education specifically, and you've done, you know, like you said, a global study, you've done a lot of work on this. What are the shortcomings in your mind? Like based on some of the work that you've been doing, based on some of your own thinking, you know, what should I be more concerned about, in a sense, about queer theory?
1: Okay. Well, obviously everything is uh, open to critique. And one of the questions that we rehearsed was, well, can queerness maintain its transgressive potential and avoid being incorporated into the, 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 the machinery of the, of the university? And one of our concerns is that queer has been used in, um, to, to kind of demonstrate Neoliberal multiculturalism, or it's used in marketization. We're in the middle of the pride season in Britain. And uh, every year we have the same debates about what on earth has happened to what used to be known as gay gay pride, is now known as uh, parades and Mardi Gras, etc. Has it been massively depoliticized by its incorporatization? Is it a marketing device? But also, I mean, we, we are quite critical about EDI, you know, equality, diversity and inclusion politics. And there's a lot of superficiality involved in EDI. And we're worried that queer could be just one, one more uh, of those indicators that is fairly meaningless in terms of change, what actually changes. There's a lot of policy symbolism in higher education about EDI. But when you actually start to inquire about well, what's changed? You'll see, not not a great deal. It's also effective capitalism. You know, this idea that you need this huge repertoire and range of communication and interpersonal skills, empathy, etc. You're able to work with difference. So, one of the concerns we've had is that queer could just become a commodity and linked to patterns of consumption or what we call rainbow capitalism. Uh, and there's also this whole notion of pinkwashing—that um, uh, regimes, systems, structures that are quite brutal and unpleasant suddenly do a big pink wash to show how tolerant—and we use that word in, 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 ironically—how tolerant and progressive they are. So I think, as with any force, it can be incorporated and it can be appropriated and diluted and used um, to demonstrate values that aren't actually enacted.
0: We have to be careful not to have like an associate dean of queerness or some sort of like KPI, key performance indicators uh, around queerness.
2: When you queer theory is so attached, like in different places in the market, for example, is so attached to making an identity, for example, it can be easily incorporated to any market rationalities and consumption, which is so often seen, you know, like if you walk around the streets in London or big cities or on capital, you, you will see like how queerness, you know, is show up all the time in, in the streets, but through consumption and identities. So in a way, what we did in the book from the beginning, we started to discuss this is how we can kind of uh, liberate queer theory from those identity, limited identity politics. We're not saying that identity politics is something useless, but we're saying that it's limited in a way. So, and we knew and we felt that queer theory can be way more productive theoretically and politically if we use it from the point of view of the politics of structure, how structures work are super important for us in order to queer relationships of power. And in a way, giving a new way of thinking about power relations, not, not as static power relations or stable, but as a way of considering new potentialities through engaging with those power relationships without necessarily uh, buying into identity all the time, you know, or, or fixations.
1: Well, we're very conscious that the term queer can be invoked to demonstrate some sort of critical edge, some edginess. So, for example, building on what Daniel was saying about identity politics, it's very common for people to identify as queer when they lead incredibly mainstream traditional lifestyles. And the queer is the notion that they're in the process of becoming, they're open to change, etc. But they often still benefit from profoundly heteronormative privilege. And it's the same with institutions. You add the term queer, and immediately it has there's an affective response that people have uh, a reassurance that there's some sort of criticality, progress, edginess there. And we and we are conscious of that, and that that is not how it should be used as a kind of branding. That it should be used as a way of thinking, as a way of analyzing, a way of challenging, not just a label you appropriate to demonstrate your value.
0: Well, Luis Morley and Daniel Layton, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Congratulations on your book. I think that's what your book does. It really digs deep into what queer theory is and how it's connected to the university and just sort of opens up a new world of possibilities and a new world of questions that we might have about our own practices within this space. So thank you for writing the book and congratulations once again.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Louise Morley is an emeritus professor at the University of Sussex, and Daniel Layton is a lecturer at the University of Exeter. Their new book, is entitled Queering Higher Education. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fante Octas, Obafemi Ogunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Prime Freshhead. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shakta Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Head by visiting com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem,
1: and I'll be back next week.